Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners. This is Rockin' Randall, and you are about to hear the second part of our two-part Bag of Bones discussion. If you haven't listened to part one, I have no idea why you're here. But hey, enjoy. So here in Structure and Format, we talk about the structure and format. And I think this book is notable. I, it's not a particularly, you know, experimental book, but I think it is uh, notable that this is a first person read. We've already talked a little bit about King's closeness with Mike and the idea that he is very much writing from his own perspective in many areas of it. But um, do you guys like first person King um, or do you prefer third person King? The only first person Kings I believe we've had is Dolores Claiborne, which is written in a very specific dialect and then also the body. If there's others, I'm just blanking on them right now. What trips me up always is that this is supposed to be first person retrospective and like not to be one of those people that's like a book written in third in first person retrospective should mimic how like a person would actually deliver a retelling of events because that's just not true. Like books can't do that. Mm-hmm. I do think that King just sort of picks and chooses when to remember that he's writing in first person retrospective <laughs> and like when to drop in some like classic moments of King foreshadowing, like before Maddie's death, when he's yep. like, the next time I talked to her, she was bleeding out or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he'll, he'll drop in foreshadowing in ways that are like really inconsistent and just sort of, again, just pick and choose from that toolbox of the retrospective mode. And like, I just, I just wish there had been more consistency and like playing with that particular mode of telling more. I think, King is so always close to first person anyway, because he does those great King parentheticals when he's talking in third person, where we get the literal kind of avalanche of thoughts from people. Mm -hmm. To me, it didn't feel like we were granted like a hugely noticeable increased amount of intimacy. And in fact, when I did notice that we were getting more intimacy, I was like, I wish we were more distant from this man. (laughs) So like first person King is just... It's just closer to King for yeah. better or for worse. <laughs> I found, I think it does have a lot to do with what we think about the main character. Um, I think when we discussed Dolores Claiborne, I know that we were a bit mixed on the use of the dialect and and the voice itself with Dolores. But I that character was at least somebody I didn't mind spending time with. Uh, she was a character I was I loved sort of living within her thoughts. And I think with the body too, Gordy, uh, you know, adult Gordy, who's narrating the story, is is a very amiable, very um, likable uh, presence to you know be leading you through this story. Yeah, I think that's my thing with Mike. And I texted Mel this pretty well early on in my read but I was like I think Mike Noonan is my most hated king protagonist of all time and I really hate spending this entire 
book in his head. Like, you know, in the, in the shining, you get to hop around or, you know, in a lot of his books, there's always that, that, uh, thrilling sense of hopping between different people's, uh, heads and, and spending time with different characters. And here we're really firmly embedded in Mike Noonan's mind, which is why I think we don't really get to build out the town, uh, the ensemble as much as I would have liked, uh, which is always one of my favorite King things, but yeah. Any other thoughts on this, uh, on the way this book is laid out? I have two real specific complaints beyond I hate Mike Noonan. Okay. <laughs> Which at some point I actually wrote like, am I supposed to hate him this much? Yeah. You know, like it does. There is this like weird lack of self awareness that we we we've, we've mentioned before. Um, one is that I wish we had done this almost diary style mm. because there's a lot of like this happened on Tuesday, this happened on Friday, and then there was a thing that was going to happen on Saturday, but I didn't know it was going to happen yet. You know, so right. I, I almost wish he would just have done it like chapters organized around a date. Like this is what happened on this date, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe I've forgotten the second thing that I didn't like. Um, <laughs> was it that you hated it, Mike Noonan? Maybe it was I hated Mike <laughs> Noonan. Um, there is the, the Steve, you know, King kind of clumsy foreshadowing stuff. He does say yeah, that I, it's I, a memoir at the end, right? Like he oh, says oh, that I it's remember, something I remember what my wrote. thing is. I remember what my thing is. <laughs> As someone who struggles with writer block myself, in the opening when he's talking about the writer's block, whatever, first hundred pages, part of me was like, this is a book written by someone with writer's block? Yeah. Like, there was like, I know you're not supposed to like maybe have that kind of thought, but then he seems to almost, at the end, he it, he seems to remember like, oh, I've I've put a book in the voice of someone who says he can't write. <laughs> <laughs> and so he adds like something like, I haven't been able to write anything. Except this memoir. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Like, and that's so funny because it's already so long, too. So, like, I remember when I got to that point of things, I haven't able to write anything except this that you've just read. Um, It's it's funny because it's I love how prolific he is, too. And maybe to him, this is writer's block only be able to put out a few thousand pages a week. But yeah. it reminds me of like if you have like a friend who's very attractive and they're in a photo with you and they're like, oh, I look terrible in that picture. And I'm yeah. like, well, I'm standing next to you and I wish I looked like you. So yeah. this is Stephen King's version of writer's block. I'm working like, on know. a novel right now. And it's just funny because like I'm happy if I get, you know, like five pages out like in a day. Uh, but then King's right. like, you know, like I Mike at one point. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I, I only got eight today. Or he's like, I was working for like two hours and I got eight pages done or something. <laughs> it's like and he's like, I got to speed it up. And I'm like, fuck off. <laughs> Yeah, I was but, gonna uh, say just my, my thoughts on Mike because I didn't he he didn't elicit as much hate in me, but I didn't really like him either. I was pretty apathetic, kind of how I felt about the novel, which a little spoiler for later on. Um, but yeah, I just I thought he was kind of not necessarily an unreliable narrator because he seems like everything he described pretty much happened. But maybe looking back with I don't know like an understanding in twenty twenty one of some of the stuff he says, you're like you're not really as you know magnanimous as you think you are in a lot of ways like i think he always thinks his character is doing the right thing but you're kind of like are you though like i just wish we knew if the book wanted us to think if he was doing the right thing and like my impression is that it is yeah like again there's just so many instances where i'm like but this is so referential that i wonder if this is a stab at awareness and i can't tell and there was one scene in particular like his first day when he gets the tr he's like well i gotta do my chores First thing is get a library card because I love to read and books are important. You know, and it's like the kind of person, the first thing they do when they go to town is get a library card. It's like, give me a break. That's not it the was first a different thing. time. Hey, now I just moved back. And one of the first <laughs> things I did was get I, a I, library I, card. I, I have a library card in my All the things that he does, week. like yeah. <laughs> that's actually kind of like charming. 
Not um, everybody I hates thought... reading like you, Dan. Yeah, yeah. I guess okay. You guys fell for. But I'm just saying, like that's yeah, to like me. The underage thing is that's... like whatever. But this library. <laughs> yeah, but that's like a, that's that's someone trying to make you like them. I don't know. It's like the first thing I did was donate clothes to the Salvation Army. Yeah, so, okay. okay. I see. What, I see what you're saying. His forced too... folksiness was like really yeah. galling. Yeah. Also, he, he's the only person that the caretakers like. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's also that's a very Kingian like. Again, I'm sure that's how Stephen King feels about his caretaker, that he's the only rich person that that yeah. caretaker genuinely likes. They're, All the other rich folksy. people that he he's a caretaker for, he doesn't really like them, but he likes he likes Stephen. That's, that's a good observation. That's exactly um, right. <laughs> since I think this conversation is natu- naturally segued into a uh, discussion of Mike. So yeah, let's hop over to heroes and villains. I'm going to have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, Vassal! <laughs> Hero and heroes and villains, we talk about the characters uh, a little bit more in depth than we did in uh, The Hook. We've obviously dug pretty deep into a lot of this, but I think there's a little more to unpack um, when we talk about Mike and Maddie. Uh, I just want to read a few more of these quotes that King said. A lot of this was in the audiobook interview he did. But this also, he said to Salon, because Salon seemed, out of all the publications, most interested in that uh, relationship between Maddie and Mike. He even said, he goes, oh, you're the first people to ask me about this. But he says, uh, what happens to these relationships when, say, the man is 60 and the woman is 40? Or when the man is 80 and the woman is 60? And re- several of the reviews of Bag of Bones, people have said about Maddie that she's an unformed character, that she's not as satisfying as some of the other characters in the book. Well, I'm sorry, but when you have a 20-year-old girl who lives in a trailer, who's been married since the age of 17, and widowed a couple years later, who's trying to sort of scrape by, that is not the stuff of which fascinating, paradoxical, bewitching characters are made. So I did the best with that I could. That um, quote is like the most offensive thing Stephen King has ever said. Yeah. <laughs> it is. That is, it's also, it's so goddamn ungenerous. And one of the things I think we sometimes talk about is what we like about King is that he's usually pretty generous with his characters. Right. He's usually like he even some of the villains, right? Like those are the really interesting, complicated villains that we like. Like Harold Louder, right? Like he mm-hmm. gives them Harold Louder's 17 and yeah. Virgin. Yeah. And like, he's what, plenty what is complicated. Not, what is not bewitching and interesting about like a teen mom? Like I like you want to know that story. Like, are you an idiot? Like child just... alcoholics who somehow like scraped her way, like kind of into some a, a decent place in life. And... Yeah. Is this is yeah. this classism? Like, is he just like, oh, she's literally trailer trash? Like, you know that story. Like, is that what he's saying? Like, I just don't understand yeah, how, response, how he the, has this opinion. Like, the response seems very reactionary. And yeah, I, I do notice that he gets that way sometimes with media when he's like a question that he doesn't want to be asked. And once he gets asked that, he just kind of freaks out. And I've been on some of the Twitter episodes of the Stephen King's tweets. And I was one who kind of compared some of his tweets have a mirror of Donald Trump's tweets and that <laughs> he gets really upset and he'll just kind of lash out. And it's like, I don't, you know, I don't think he would defend these words today. He probably the, I wouldn't. Mean, I think that, maybe he has saying, the awareness be now more, to be like, it was Mike's book, not Maddie's book. And I didn't right. care about Maddie. Like, Which would have been a more thoughtful answer and a more honest one. But I, I just feel like the way with this, he's like, so I did the best with it I could. It's like, well, nobody, I mean, you chose to do this undertaking. Nobody assigned you to write <laughs> yeah. this character. So don't like, get mad at that. Here, write this 17, right. write this teen mom. Right. Like, well, t- try to make her interesting. I tried. Yeah. What do you like, want me to do? Right. Like, and I think, that's so a, I think the classist element comes in some ways from like, I love that you brought up Harold, uh, Anna, because 
obviously, because Harold, you know, in some ways is reflective of King as a teenager. And Harold's had a lot less life experience than Maddie has had in this book. And yet he never says the same thing about uh, Harold. So I think that that's a little bit bizarre. But I think it is sort of important to... um, to revisit the first scene with Maddie a little bit. I've got it up here. And I think <laughs> I think the first thing that he says the, is that he assumes that Maddie is a shitty mother. Um, and I mean, maybe part of that is due to the fact that, you know, he finds her child walking in the road. So I guess there is that aspect of, you know, I, I you might assume neglectful parenting. But there is something really loaded in the way that he instantly assumes like Maddie is going to smack the kid or something um, when she comes to get him. So um, let me bring up this section here. The driver's door flew open. Maddie DeVore flew out like a circus acrobat shot from a cannon. If you can imagine a circus acrobat dressed in old paisley shorts and a cotton smock top. My first thought was that the little girl's big sister had been babysitting her, that Maddie and Mummy were two different people. I knew that little kids often spend a period of their development calling their parents by their first names, but this pale-cheeked blonde girl looked all of 12, 14 at the outside. So that's how young um, he God. describes Maddie as 12 to 14. And he says, um, there was something else too, okay? Another assumption that I made. The muddy four-wheel drive, the baggy paisley shorts, the smock that all but screamed Kmart, the y- long yellow hair held back with those little red elastics, and most of all, the inattention that allows the three-year-old in your care to go wandering off in the first place. All those things said trailer trash to me. I know how that sounds, but I had some basis for it. Also, I'm Irish, goddammit. My ancestors were trailer trash when the trailers were still horse-drawn caravans you want to talk about defensive writing though like (laughs) it's um, it's the same where like okay at least he's recognizing that this is fucked up to think like he's like okay i know this is bad i'm gonna be defensive about it whatever but then rather than bear out this like you were wrong and like look she's beautiful in her own way it's like she becomes more and more beautiful the more untrailer trashy she gets well he has this fetish where he imagines her at um at a country club uh, country club (laughs) dressed up and how beautiful she'd be then you know and that's when she's at her most beautiful later when she looks like she's in Mm -hmm. her tennis whites yep i just i like have most of this section like tons of red that reads like (laughs) a little much jesus christ uh my god i do not like you yes my god quit it jesus christ oh and then where is this part in here well he says it was my first day back in town i didn't want to spend any of it watching an inattentive slut yep abuse her child i mean it's one thing to go from like it's i just want to point out the the sexuality here like it's one thing to go from like she might be an attentive mother to slut yeah that was really shocking (laughs) to me because yeah i mean not even sometimes i think i feel like yeah that was also just part of it's part of how king kind of talks in these books back then like there's that other line where mike just casually drops in this this metaphor that's like as discreetly as a pimp like leading you to a whore's bedroom as if that's mm-hmm. like a normal metaphor to like <laughs> slot into a book with that for nothing it has to do with like sex work or sex at all like i don't, I don't know but it's yeah, so fucking that, weird I, I think that sequence too like when anna was talking about there's a lot of class mixed in with the sexuality there which is very strange um because she kind of the way they describe it she sounds like a dolores hayes right she's like this lolita that sort of look and then yeah the She's probably going to hit her. She's probably white trash. Oh, imagine her at a country club, right? A place that she would never go. But if she was there, just imagine the reactions it would get. Um, Except yeah, as a, weird... a maid or waitress. Yeah, she exactly. Yeah, And it does <laughs> no, turn and, out and later. The... Sorry, go I ahead, was going to say, even the thing, like, when he says, you know, but hey, 
I'm, I'm allowed to say white trash because my ancestor, you know, that reminds me of like politicians being like, well, you know, my grandpa was a farmer. So therefore I know what it's like to be lower <laughs> class. Right. My like, mom was I, a slut. I, yeah. Like I, I can do that, but it's, it, I don't know, just like having this conversation is making me more realize like how much classism is in this. But power. I think, and too, again, like the slut thing, like that does end up getting disproven in a way that seems subtly endorsed by the book later when she's like, I just want you to know Lance was my first and you'll be my second. Like I've been with nobody else. And it's like, ah, yes, that makes her all the more appealing. She's mm-hmm. not really a slut. And he also assumes that she's stupid. Yep. Mm-hmm. You yep. know, and like, like when he she recognizes him, which of course, fuck, like always in Stephen King books, like the authors are like <laughs> the rock stars, celebrities yeah. that people recognize by sight. You know, um, she was the right age after all, and my books were probably better for her, better for her uh-huh. than spending her afternoons in front of General Hospital and One Life to Live. He- and then. <laughs> The thing with Bartleby. Yes, he has like, a teacher about Bartleby. <laughs> like, it, Bartleby's not that obscure. I don't know if anybody here's read it, but like, it's not. It's oh yeah, I know Bartleby well. That terrible is, part where she's like, "Can you explain the whole thing to me? me? <laughs> I want to impress my library sluts. Friend, yeah, like, sluts, my could, fellow sluts, <laughs> <laughs> my fellow library sluts. That's good. Um, you know, like that might have been a good chance to show that she's got like something going on in her head. Like she's like, no. I like it, but I don't understand. <laughs> Can you please explain to me? You know, just Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so um, he talked about this a little bit more. Uh, he says one of the moral dilemmas I set up in the story is that Mike Noonan falls in love and becomes attracted with a woman who is half his age. And in a way, complicating this even further and kind of juicing my interest in the problem is not only is she half his age, but she looks even younger than that. So the dilemma that's set up there is one that I think any man my age could relate to. There's still a biological imperative that you're attracted to women who are increasingly younger than you, who are increasingly less interested in old guys. So in a way, it's wish fulfillment, a little self-awareness there. Uh, You realize something here is not quite right. This is not exactly an entirely healthy pull. So in the course of trying to work out what their relationship would be is that one of the tensions of the book is that there's a genuine love between them. So there's a family unit here. Uh, Fate is calling him to finish up. Um... I wish and he so, would stop saying biological imperative. I know. Yeah. So, and then he has another line that's, it was just kind of <laughs> fucked up. He goes, I've gotten into situations like this before. I love the idea of stories that go in a direction that's considered politically incorrect. Mm-hmm. In Bag of Bones, the question became whether or not uh, Mike Noonan is going to sleep with Maddie DeVore and what is their sex going to be like? It would probably be really great. But what is, <laughs> and he said for both of them, but what is the conversation going to be like the next week, the next year? What happens to Maddie? Uh, though, the, but he says uh, with what happens to Maddie though, the question is never answered. So um, don't object to those questions. And I don't object to writing about things that he thinks are right. quote, politically incorrect. It's just like Maddie needs to be a character for them to be lo- in love at all. And she's not, she's this vacuous vehicle for Mike to think that she's hot like that like that's the problem the majority of her scenes are him are her being so excited to talk to him and thank him for all he's done for her um and he's also doing this nice guy savior shit which is like yeah well he at least reckons a little bit with that i mean and i think that says something about mike too which is um i think he's a little bit obsessed with uh i think this is king reckoning a little bit with his wealth too and um and because there's so much discussion about that um i had one quote here that i thought was interesting he says 
uh, wealth is like the Richter scale. Once you pass a certain point, the jumps from one level to the next aren't double or triple, but some amazing and ruinous multiple you don't even want to think about. Fitzgerald had it straight, although I guess he didn't believe his own insight. The very rich are different from you and me. I thought of telling Bill that and decided to keep my mouth shut. He had a sump pump to fix. Um, So I don't know. He goes back and forth between being like, I can... Um, I'm a normal guy, I swear, but I could pay for your entire existence. Right. Well, you that's know? one thing. If it was a third uh, person perspective, it would be funny if Maddie was just playing him this whole time. Right. <laughs> like, and you find out she's like, all I had to do is like brush up against him a little bit. And this old man's going to pay for my custody. You know, like might have been interesting. I think she genuinely did like him in this book from the way it's written. But that might have been a nice insight into her. Because, yeah. I mean, we know actually, too, that she didn't care about the money because she was willing to stay with her husband, even after he lost his fortune. So yeah, or his inheritance, I should say. Yeah. And that's about the most insight. I feel like we get into who she really is. Like, I wish we knew more about her relationship with Lance and, um, and, uh, and even saw more of her as a mother. I think we just, she's so willing and open to welcome, uh, Mike into her life, uh, that it's just like, there's no hesitancy whatsoever, whatsoever to that. So. It's all wish fulfillment. She yeah. literally makes no wrong step at any turn where Mike is like, oh, maybe this is bad or she is bad. <laughs> like It's all just, uh, yes, the perfect woman in, in, well, a, in a stressful situation. She did let her kid run by the highway. I'll, I'll fault her for that. <laughs> she didn't let though, her kid. It, she just lost her. I would, was I would be judgmental in that situation. But without that, he wouldn't have got to brush against the barely there boob. So yeah. like, hey, I'm not, I'm not saying it. If I saw a child along the highway, I would assume bad parenting. You would assume slut. I, yeah, see, that's the jump that I can't make with Mike. Or <laughs> I, I just, <laughs> um, let's talk about Mike in the sense that, like, we, we're ragging on him a lot because he is a pretty unpleasant character. And I think the central question, and Mel, you brought this up earlier, and I think it's it's been sort of... Um, uh, activating a lot of the conversation is the question of what does King want us to think about him? Like, you know, Anna, you had that in your notes. Like, am I supposed to like this character? And I was asking that too. And it, it, that's the thing is like, like you brought up Mel, there are these moments where we feel like Mike is interrogating himself, but, but in the end, it just oh, like everyone in his life loves him. Everyone thinks he's great. His wife, you know, like when he's like, would my wife cheat on me? And the person's like, no, she loved you. You know, it's like there he, he doesn't seem to have any enemies or people who find him thorny or find him any of these things. He is beloved by people, which is what I think uh, and desired by people. Uh, I think that's sort of what makes me feel like King really doesn't have an interest in uh in making this a character who has um, a darker side in that sense. Like, I feel like we are supposed to like this character and be very charmed by this character. Um, so I guess my question is where, when in this book did you find yourself most uh, intrigued by him? Cause I know that there are parts of it um, that we did enjoy. Uh, and I guess I'm just curious, like when did you like Mike Noonan the most? I think I've already, I've already, I know I've already said this, but his description of the writing process at times is is very compelling. Yeah. Uh, I, I, although I did also notice that he, the men in the basement metaphor he uses, he, he, he specifies that they're working class at some point, <laughs> like, <laughs> which is uh, like, uh, you With know, their a little, little on pale the nose. lunches, like yeah. <laughs> um, 
I, I also just wanted to throw in there when he's wondering if Joe has had an affair, one of the things that he gets stuck on is that it's an older man. Yeah. What about that biological imperative? Right. Like to be attracted to younger people. I guess that's the domain of men only, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the writing stuff is, 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 that's not masturbatory, which again, there's it's sort of hard to tease apart because um, maybe that's just how it is for him. Um, is pretty good. I I think that the fair scene also yeah is, is well done. Although there's the problematic description of Sarah. Um, I wish that I appreciated his affection for Kyra more. I I do think he kind of sexualizes her. Yeah, a couple in a, times in a weird way that is uncomfortable and um yeah. But most of the time, I guess I didn't actively hate him. It was just, you're kind of a jerk, you know? <laughs> like, I, and this is the weakness of the first person, I think. Yeah. yeah. I think I, I, that, that with a third person narrative of, of Noonan, I think King would have been able, he usually is able to, to shade his characters a little. We would have gotten a little bit of like some, you know, flaw. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I, I was going to say it. And I guess we, we've really d- dissected Mike. If I had to think of something, I was going to say, and I kind of agree with Anna, like the relationship with Kyra, I enjoyed a little bit. Um, it wasn't, it, it definitely got a little weird, but I do like, cause I'm someone who really likes kids. I know Randall is too, but as a man with a graying beard, I'm not always trusted. Right. Like I can't just like, <laughs> like when I see a little kid walk by, I'll like wave to them sometimes. And you can almost sense the parents being like, don't look at my kid. Um, so for him to have almost like a surrogate child of like, he always wanted to have the kid, you know, they, his wife, when she was hit was pregnant. So when he finally got to have that kind of, I mean, it's almost like grandfatherly for him at that point. But when he got to read her the bedtime story and, you know, she hugs him and tackled my own corner, Mac, I thought that was very cute. And in the audio book, it was funny because it's Stephen King reading it. <laughs> so he does it with that main accent with the, I tackle my own corner, Mac. <laughs> very funny. But we should talk about Kyra, too. Um, yeah, we will. Major. Uh, Mel, when did you like Mike Noonan the most? I feel like the parts of the book where I felt most connected to Mike had nothing to do with the character of Mike and had more to do with like what was going on in the story. Right. Right. I would be interested when Mike would be on the brink of some kind of humbling, like one of my favorite parts of the story is the triple fuck dream sequence. It's great. Yeah. Just because it's so risky. It's so like daring to kind of take that issue head on of like, you love these two women. Also, we're going to throw Sarah in there. And like, (laughs) how are we going to fucking deal with this? I guess like, this is so erotic and strange and surreal and like i don't think i like love mike in that moment but i appreciate the writing more yeah yeah i think mike is a vessel for um yeah the seek like i agree i feel like and i i'm with you too anna like there when he talks about writer's block a bit i was i i think those were the times i felt i hated when he was talking about publishing i found it very obnoxious especially because it goes on for so long um and it almost felt like he had an axe to grind but I think the discussion of writer's block and that I remember feeling, you know, somewhat and also the guys in the basement, stuff like that. I felt like I was connecting with him on a creative level. But um, but yeah, I think the the dream sequences were the were when I think I was spending having the most fun with Mike. And that includes the fair sequence, um, but also the yeah, the triple fuck dream sequence, I think is a good way to phrase phrase it. And uh, definitely one of my favorite parts of the book. I've got some sections for that written down. Um, uh, for a later section, but, uh, but yeah, let's talk about, um, Kyra. Um, she's a little child. She's very adorable. Um, 
did we what do you think about her dan uh well, like i said i just i think it's funny the way little kids exaggerate and use language um so when she's like i ran i threw the frisbee five thousand times yeah you know these little like exaggerations that are an adult would never, you know, we'd be like, oh, I threw it a dozen times. But it's just, it's very cute to me. I thought she was pretty well written. Um, I mean, Stephen King has multiple children, so he knows what it's like to be around kids that age. Um, and one thing that I'm disappointed in the miniseries already is the actors they cast to play her is clearly older than three. Um, it's like she's three or four, right, in this book? Yeah, she's three, I believe. Yeah. And it's, I, I get it, it's hard to cast someone and also with like does she suck is she a shitty actor i i don't never get her out of there yeah i know i just love i i we i feel like we have like kind of a long history on this podcast of trashing child actors and stephen king adaptations so uh might as well keep that keep that spirit alive uh so the girl who plays (laughs) uh uh kira in the bag of bones miniseries sucks says dan flager um Get out of acting. Like, That's so terrible. Yeah. I thought she was so obnoxious. I didn't think she was well written. I feel like King just romanticized <laughs> child romanticizes children. And like the dialogue did not seem realistic to me. I mean, I guess I don't I probably spend less time around children than the average person, but I was like, this yeah. is like a manic pixie dream child. <laughs> she like never cries. She's like always just like saying the cutest shit. There's just like nothing there. She's like a blank slate. I was going to say, I, uh, um, she reminded me a lot of one of my nieces, uh, Greta, um, who's really sweet and the same age. And I do feel like uh, he captured some of it. Um, I, I think some of like the 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 kind of oddball statements, the repetition of certain phrases, like the quarterback thing, all of that felt very real to me because that's something I've definitely witnessed with um, kids of that age is they love to uh, repeat things and they love to exaggerate and they love to make stuff up. But uh, but I do. The thing about children, though, is that um, nobody is as cute sustainably that long as Kyra is uh, that child uh, would be screaming and crying and being generally annoying a lot more. Uh, so um, yeah, manic pixie dream child. I can see um, uh, Anna, any thoughts on, on this little, this little peanut? <laughs> well, I hate children. <laughs> uh, I don't blame you. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't, I don't think, um, but I, I think the last thing you said is, is maybe the, the biggest problem I had, she when her cuteness is very well described, right? And she, oh yeah, she seems amazing. But no one is, no one, including any human, especially <laughs> humans under three, are sustainably that adorable. I you was. Know? I mean, uh, oh, I don't well, believe it. Present no. company. I don't believe it. <laughs> yes, you were a little nightmare. Um, That's my my uh, guess. And and I think, but you know, he he also can write. I mean, I'm trying to think. Like Danny is such an interesting child, you know. Um, I, I almost wish we'd gotten, I guess three's a little young to get Kira's perspective exactly. And he is writing in first person. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I, I think the over cuteness of it is a little weird. I, I can't, I, the sexual, sexualization of her just is a huge rock for me to swallow. Yeah. You Mel, know? you sent me a little section where he described, um, uh, Maddie's He's skin. talking about Maddie's skin and it's like, it was just as silky as her daughter. And I'm like, why, why are we going there? Oh, come on. Oh. I, we should, we, one thing we did skip over with Mike and Kyra though is that do they have the shine? Because they refer to it as the zone. 
Oh. But they clearly connect psychically. So when you mentioned Danny, it's see that kind of was another. There. It's just it's ten pounds of 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 supernatural content in a five pound bag. Like there was yeah. a bit too much like uh, stuff in here. I didn't need that added component that he could like visualize and see what they were doing. You know, and it serves no purpose. Right? Exactly. Like, it, it 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 is just like it just it's some. And it doesn't seem actually connected to anything else, mm-hmm. like except if if you went with the kind of town hive mind, but that's yeah. not what it is. That's something that there's a. It's not part of the town hive mind. It's actually just in with the three of them, and there's no reason. Like, I feel like it could have kind of been cool, and there are some parts of it that I find cool, like when he finds out about the refrigerator magnets moving in Maddie's house is kind of a cool reveal, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, But he should have known that, I guess. Yeah. And Uh, one last infuriating thing about Mike is that he never never tells Maddie about what's going on with him. That's right. It's like so fucking patronizing. Like, she deserves to know you ostensibly really (laughs) like this woman. And like, she's scared because refrigerator magnets are moving around in her house and you're not going to be like, and you're giving her rational explanations for it that you know, aren't true. And you're also Also, telling her daughter not to tell mommy. This is a secret for us. We have a little secret. (laughs) I love the way your skin feels. Don't tell mom. Oh God. (laughs) Secrets. Um, any other, like, I feel like those are, I guess I want to talk about Max DeVore a little bit, only because oh, yeah. we just get this one, I, I fucking loved this scene with, uh, with the Max. The rock throwing? Yeah, the rock Oh, that is a great scene. scene. That is truly, that's one of the scariest scenes in the book for me. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah. It's, it's, it's manic. It feels like, uh, like, it's... It, it feels pitched on another level of mania than the rest of the book. Although I think the book is, has some mania to it and some, and a lot of melodrama, but man, Max is so fucking evil. And he makes them this like super villain with this, like, like uh sci-fi wheelchair it's got like eight <laughs> right. wheels on it and like it's like you you i'm envisioning like krang from like the uh, teenage mutant ninja turtles like in this freaking like uh you know huge apparatus and then rajette is like this um you know white-haired tall like 70 pound uh woman who can like chuck a ball like you wouldn't believe like these are just like very comic book villains it's and such I, a good setup when he realizes that he can't tell anyone because it's fucking ridiculous yeah yeah, yeah. Like it, and like but the way max talks have um this is probably this is probably more for the listeners than people on this um but mark hamill does the voice of the joker in the animated mm-hmm. series and also in some of the batman video games and uh all I could hear, because the way Max Divorce speaks is like so like he just says the nastiest stuff about he's like, does her pussy suck? You know, and so I could only hear it in the voice of the Joe of Mark Hamill's Joker because it's that like, like uh, hysterical. And so I'm sure some of our listeners will get that reference. But I think it's uh, I he could says only cunt, first of all. Oh, yeah. He <laughs> says cunt. Yeah. Many times and just says the filthiest shit you've ever he's heard. He's a in your nasty life. old man. I know. I love uh, Mr. Potter from. Uh, it's a wonderful life. And yeah. I love too that. It, and what's the assistant's name? I'm drawing a blank. Rojette. Rojette. Rojette, yes. But even when she's not hitting Mike anymore, he's like, what's the matter? You lose the strength in your arm. And it's like, he's not even loyal to his own people, right? He's just going to yeah. cut down everyone in his circle. His daughter. Yeah. yeah, and right. yeah exactly. Who has, his daughter, who has yeah. leukemia? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
No, it was cured because she got chemo and that's why she's bald. But she cares, you know. And also she was in a madhouse or was she in a madhouse? We don't know. But it is a um, scary thing to the rocks hitting you in the water, right? Because yeah. if one does hit you, yeah. you're gone. And, you know, some foreshadowing of people drowning in the lake, obviously. Um, but yeah, I was trying to think in my case, like, what would I do in that scenario? Like, do you go underwater and try to trick them? I don't. How would you guys escape that? It's, so your dead wife lifts you by your nape of your neck. Yeah, you somehow. just need a ghost like a in your life to, <laughs> to keep you going. Um, no, I, uh, I'm i just going to read this Max DeVore line just because it's so funny. Like, he's so evil. I'm going to give you one chance to save your soul. Go away, my fine whore master. Right now, in the clothes you stand up in. Don't bother to back a bag. Don't even stop to make sure you turned off the stove burners. Go, leave the whore and leave the whore let. <laughs> the whore let? Come which is, on, which is man. basically how Mike sees them. So yeah, like. <laughs> I know. I, I I was like cackling while reading it. I loved it. And I remember when I was, I remember when I read this when I was a kid, uh, uh, wanting more of that. Like that was the stuff I was craving from this book was more ghosts and more of them. And so I remember what I was so pissed off when he killed himself. It's literally a shift in genre when like Mike is walking yeah. on the beach and he shows up and is like, Ah, young whore master. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? Like, what book is Who this is this now? guy? Yeah. I, I thought that the sci-fi wheelchair was maybe what actually kind of really brought it out of the book. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like, because the rest of it would have been okay. He, why was it? Why did I guess he needed to be in the wheelchair so that he could almost kill Mike, like running off the road? But also, like one of those old-fashioned wheelchairs that are super heavy. Yeah, you know, like the wooden ones. That might have been a cool choice. Uh, and I also want to say about Max, who was who was fun. Um, it doesn't really, the book kind of implies, but does not actually say, and I, I kind of wish it was more clear that the suicide, by committing suicide, he, Max knew he would come back. Yeah. Right. That that was actually his real revenge was he was going to become a part of whatever it is that was haunting Mike. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't think they make that clear, no, right? No. Like, it, no. Although it's, I it's, do it's, think that's what, what, that obviously is what happens. He says it later that Max possessed Rajette. But yep. I wish that that had been a little more like that's his real evil genius, right? That yep. that he's going to come from behind, you know, from back from the grave to like ruin the lives of. And the yeah. plan to keep, to keep Maddie there by being like, I'll give you all my money if you stay, like, which, which means that she would stay and then eventually drown Cairo, yeah. but it turns out like that like just won't hold water and yeah. court. like <laughs> is that serious like I just don't understand how he was thinking about yeah whatever yeah. you can't attach weird stuff like that yeah like I said there's just that was good to know for a future reference I yeah. feel like for my hey, there's can I say just for you guys legal heads there's a thing to rule against perpetuity that is so complex with inheritance that it's the only thing you can't be sued for malpractice because the courts recognize like it's basically like willing something to someone who could not possibly be born within 21 years and legal scholars have wrangled with it. So as I was reading it, I was like, oh, is he going to get into this subject matter? But, <laughs> wow. but yeah, inheritance is very weird. He probably did in the like, thousand dollar, the thousand page oh, yeah. version. But they're going to be like, look, we're not going to say you can only get this if you stay in this ghost house. Courts are going to be like, get out of here. <laughs> you have to stay in the ghost house. Whore. Exactly. It's whore and whorelet. Um, whore master. So. Yeah, I just, I love this character. Uh, it was so 
it was so deeply silly and fun. And uh, and yeah, just him like pushing Mike off the ledge <laughs> with his wheelchair. I just was laughing my ass off. And uh, and but then it gets scary. It does but then get it gets scary. genuinely scary. It does like because just the con like because I remember thinking I'm like this is schoolboy shit, right? Like just throwing rocks at somebody when they're in the water. But then you really think about the logistics of it, and it's like no, I would be fucked because rocks hurt like a lot and um and then especially if you're in deep water and you're not the best swimmer uh it's it's scary and you're panicking yeah and you're she's panicking got a good arm yeah, yeah. And she's yeah. got a good arm yeah i thought that was a really effective sequence and it was the kind of sort of mania um that like i don't know like you know when i was th- like i had the same thought where i'm like steven with this scene you're out of control but it was like <laughs> the, it was the good out of control yeah, as yeah. opposed to him just like salivating over Maddie every chance Being he can horny, get. Yeah. yeah, just he channeled the horny energy into, into some actual menace, which I appreciated. Um, any other characters we want to talk about before we move on? Because it's not really a character rich story. Um, I, we, we should talk about Joe. I mean, poor Joe. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I guess or, there's not or a lot do you to mean say. Lucy? Isn't it John? <laughs> I thought yeah, it was Joanna. John. Oh, oh, Joe! I thought you were talking about the lawyer, his dead wife. Yeah. Oh yeah, I yeah. forgot about the dead you wife. You forgot her. <laughs> yeah, that exactly. Is, you know, and again, like as I said, or should we call her Lisey? I mean, it's yeah. this—it's just the long-suffering author's wife, right? Who who he describes as a scatterbrain, my my sweet scatterbrain. She's so like pleasantly point. quirky and like she, a oh, way and that... she gave up writing because she knew I was better. Yeah. At it. So yeah, I said she just to does Mel... her other stuff. She tried to play banjo, but you know, like she just goes from thing to thing. She, she has her desk full of shit and <laughs> you know, but she, she knits she knits a good afghan you know so yeah there's I, that i found her very <laughs> obnoxious in the same way like i don't know like only because i was only getting i was mainly we mainly just get the glimpses of of their relationship and like them together and them together is annoying like uh the way it's described and that's how it is with Lisi and scott too they just sound like the most insufferable couple that i would ever want to be around and so yeah they're just just constantly constantly fucking and uh and so like i mean but the whole concept of like her you know this is where i wish maybe we could have gotten the third person book where maybe we did get to go back and and actually follow joe and like her interviewing these people and getting this whole story and uncovering it because that is interesting like that to me is maybe the book i would have wanted to read instead of bag of bones um, it seems pretty fucking you know is full of agency and also a writing thing yeah. that she was doing yeah. you know and that's like much better than anything lisi gets at least he's never given something quite so powerful to do. Mm-hmm. Like it's all just kind of at behest of Scott. Right. And I thought this, I mean, as someone who's done some reporting in my life, what she's doing is hard. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's a pretty in- intense investigative project to be doing. And she should have gotten a lot more credit for it. And yeah, in the third person book, it would be really cool to f- have her figure out this mystery. Right. You know? And to, to, to also struggle with whether or not to tell him and maybe even have told him something. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like the book kind of sort of doesn't really, I, I feel like there is a possibility within the book that she tried to talk to him. Yeah. Right. I got that like, vibe. She could have said anything. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't know. She didn't pin a note to if my we shirt. So I don't then... <laughs> yeah, I will say that like one of the things I, I liked in the early going of the book was just the concept of I called it I wrote it in my notes, it's like a mystery in plain sight. It's like um the whole concept that I was living with somebody who um 
you know, was living this whole other life that I wasn't aware of and like learning these things, like really obvious things, just that she was coming to the cabin and she was uh, having things delivered. And, and just this whole that is a compelling concept to me. But I guess like ultimately the mystery of what Joe is up to is a lot less interesting than what Joe was actually doing. And we don't find out what Joe was actually doing until much later, like the last you know part of the story. Um, so yeah, it was hard for me to connect to that character. I mean, again, like we're mainly seeing her in dream sequences where he's, you know, fucking her on the raft. Um, luckily, she's uh, another just woman that like is exactly what Mike needs in his life for a period of time. And yeah. there's no messiness around her. There's no faults. There's just like, Joe was great. I miss yeah. her. <laughs> She's a scatterbrain. She's a scatterbrain. Right. Uh, <laughs> so cool. Uh, I just want to say my favorite character in the book was Joe. Yeah, you like no, Joe? <laughs> oh no! Hey man, uh, I didn't really weigh in on her, but yeah, I, I agree with what was said on her. I like Buddy Jellison. Yeah, I mean, that thing was Jellison. Some of these yeah. guys, like you know, even Bill, um, Buddy, like. Uh, uh, a lot of those people were interesting. Like I would have liked yeah. to spend more time with them, but yeah, I really just in the end, never really aside from bill, but like, even then bill was just like you and me ain't, we ain't good no more, you know? And then <laughs> that, that felt very abrupt in its own way too, because it's like, uh, Mike's just trying to figure out what happened with his wife or whatever. And like, like, uh, it just seems like that felt a little abrupt to me, but, um, mm-hmm. and you know, and like his wife being so furious and everything it's, it's, it, those were good scenes, but, um, I never really felt connected to any of these auxiliary characters, which I remember being really disappointed by when I was younger. Cause I was like, Oh cool. Small main town with lots of people. Uh, hopefully it'll be an ensemble piece. And it really didn't end up being one. So cool. Any other thoughts on characters? Awesome. Let's, uh, talk about misery she she died she just slipped away slipped away slipped away she didn't just slip away you did it 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 you You murdered my misery here in misery we talk about the things we hated and obviously we've touched on a lot of them uh but we have some i'm we probably have a few uh uh passages we could read if anybody wants to uh bring any up let me know i just remember i just wrote down all this writing bullshit because i think that entire um the opening talking about various authors and their places on the the bestseller uh, lists and how many books you put out a year i just i thought it was interesting for like five pages and then it kept going you know do you mean the publishing thing because i don't oh, the that's, publishing I, thing yeah that's what i mean yeah. yeah i mean i will we've touched on this earlier but just so pe- but i've spoken on this podcast before about how much king's anti-fat you know, mm-hmm. bias is is troubling to me. So you mentioned it in the context of other books you've been talking about, but uh, so um, he's talking. This is the deposition scene, which is you know bad for other reasons too. Um, so uh, Durgan chuckled fatly. Oh, I literally, which- I literally am bringing that what up right f- now. <laughs> okay, sorry. No, no, no. Sorry that's to- good. Keep going. Okay. What is that, by the way? And also, I've 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 heard King go off on adverbs before. Yeah, and that is a terrible use of an adverb. <laughs> like read the next sentence. Doesn't even call yeah. it out. He's like, why yeah, not? Why not? He was a fat guy. <laughs> Most fat people I like. They have expansive natures to go with their expansive waistline. Awful. But, Just. But awful. there is a subgroup which I think of as evil little fat folks. <laughs> You don't want to fuck with the ELFFs if you can help it. They will burn your house and rape your dog. 
if you give them half an excuse and a quarter of an opportunity, what? many of them stand over five foot two, Durgan's height, I estimated. Many are under five feet. This is such a specific thing. Yeah. They smile a lot, but their eyes don't smile. The evil little fat folks hate the world. Mostly they hate the folks who can look down on the length of their bodies and still see their own feet. Jesus. Oh, this included me, although just barely. I guess he's not so trim. Maybe. I, he, I know he refers to himself as athletic. Yeah, he does. Point. He does. Anyway, that is just um, like, you, no need for, also, just, uh, why? If you're fat, or you why not? I guess. a dog. Actually, the word rape gets thrown around a lot in this yeah. in this book in a way that is, like, very casual. Rape, but... rape your dog. Could have okay. just left it at laughed fatly. <laughs> that was a bad <laughs> enough lesson. I know. We would have <laughs> gotten your point, Steve, Yeah, like, you know? I, I was going to say, I just, I wish I could, like, you know, transport myself to the day when he wrote this section just to like see what was going on because it feels like he's on something. You know, it's like yeah. it feels like somebody worked him up or something, or like he drank too many putt cups. It does feel like so many coffee. passages in this book are Stephen like writing furiously with like and saying like yeah yeah and then like not coming back to it later to like mm-hmm. look at what he wrote. Like yeah. that should have been edited yeah. <laughs> unnecessary. Yeah. Just um, on, on the adverb thing, can I add one that I didn't like? Yeah. Okay. Uh, when they had the barbecue at Maddie's house, uh, he describes the meal and says, we ate hugely. <laughs> that reminds me of a certain Trump someone style. that I, again, have compared him to who used the word hugely in times that I did not think it was appropriate. That is funny. <laughs> I, uh, um, I feel like I'm crossing off. Like I have like as discreetly as a pimp. We talked about that. Pregnant by 12. Talked about that. Yeah, we've um, talked about a lot of it. <laughs> there's one yeah. on... There's like an example of writing that really fucking like, I don't even know. I, I hope we can come up with a label for this. So like, this is just him talking about what he's done during the day. I thought my pal in the Bosox, the Bosox cap would have approved. I checked my watch and saw that I had finished my village burger 45 minutes ago. Close enough for government work, Kimasabi, especially after engaging in an energetic game of trash bag treasure hunt. And it's like, that's like five little inside jokes with yourself. <laughs> In like one cent, it's like so obnoxious. It's like again that like folksiness. That's like that's like Diablo what is Cody it? dialogue. Like what is it? I hate it. It's um, like King times ten. Like it's when he goes overboard with his stupid little proverbs. I know. On page three forty eight, this just made me laugh. Um, because if anybody said this, I would kick them in the balls. Maddie's like saying, "Oh, you know, I felt something. It it felt like uh, I don't know." And he and she or he said that, and she goes like a vibe, and he goes yes. A vibration, but not a good vibration. Like in the, hold on, this is so good, but not a good vibration. Like in the Beach Boys song, a bad vibration. (laughs) I lost it. Like I, because it's just like, but not a good vibration is where it could have ended. I just love that it adds like in the Beach Boys song and then bad and bad is italicized. Or you'd be like, not a good vibration. And she could have said like, okay, Brian Wilson, you know, (laughs) him being like, and that's Beach Boys, just so you know. You might be too young. Yeah, you might be too young to know about that one. Yeah, I got one. Um, it's just another class one. We, you, it's easy to skip over when he's talking about uh, the share, the bad sheriff, uh-huh. or whatever. Uh. And he talks about Cleveland style. Which, by the way, what, why, why the diss on Cleveland? Like, I don't. It just comes out of nowhere that he describes the way this guy's dressed as Cleveland style. That this is a particular thing. 
He was handsome in a way that would be attractive to certain women, the kind who cringe when anyone in their immediate vicinity raises his voice, the kind who rarely call the police when things go wrong at home because on some miserable secret level, they believe they deserve the things that go wrong at home, wrong things that result in black eyes, dislocated elbows, and the occasional cigarette burn on the booby. Booby. The booby. <laughs> These are women who more often than not call their husbands or lovers daddy. daddy. As in, I can can I bring you a beer, daddy? Or did you have a hard way at, hard day at work, daddy? I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, like he, for one thing, he is well, he is lusting after a woman who could call him daddy. You know. Yeah. Um, and also, it, like for someone who I think thinks of himself as a defender of abused women, we've talked about that before. Oh yeah. That's an awfully condescending description yeah. of someone in an abusive relationship. It's not like he but was, not he was bad the type of guy to hit women. It's like he's the type of guy that like pathetic women would let. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. That's I, ex- right. Yeah. I had kink shaming use of daddy in my notes. Also kink shaming. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> yes. I was trying to think back and I was like, what the hell was that supposed to mean? And then when you read that passage, I was like, right. That's. <laughs> <laughs> I like um, when he wakes up and thinks that his shirt is a ghost and then realize it, realizes it's a shirt and says, oh shit, fuck me till I cry. <laughs> what is that? That's just kind of, that's just kind of funny. I will have the uh, woman emerging from the water at the beach and he describes her body as quite yummy. Ugh. Yeah. Rub me the wrong way. Uh, this was awful. Uh, page sixty-five. It was the cut in the back of my hand. That cut had been in all my dr- all the dreams. I would swear it had. And then it had actually appeared. You didn't get that sort of shit in the works of Doctor Freud. Stuff like this was strictly for the psychic friends hotline. I don't know. I just find it very corny. And then he has this like boomer dad joke. Uh, like right after that, I was in seat eight two. The nice thing about flying up front is that if the plane goes down, you're first to the crash site. <laughs> Shut up, Steven. <laughs> yeah. I like uh, this is just a perfect encapsulation of like maybe the class stuff, maybe even some race stuff. I don't know. I thought again how beautiful she looked, her body slim in the white dress, her features clean and perfectly made. Like what? 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 She's got to be, uh, she's gotta be all clean the- and. <laughs> what were you going to say, Anna? Oh, just if we're going to just continue to check off some of the class bullshit. Um this is after Maddie has died and is appearing as a ghost to save her child. Oh, he manages to say the shape solidified. And even before I can make out the face, I recognize the baggy shorts and their fading swirls of color and the smock top. Only Kmart sells smock tops of such perfect shapelessness. I think it may be a federal law. Like, why put that label? <laughs> it's, like, it's like in the I middle know. of an action sequence. It's the middle of an action season. It's a ghost who's going to save her child. It's the ghost of the like, woman he loved, and he's got to make fun of her clothes when she. Yeah. yeah. Like how many of his readers shopped at Kmart? I shopped at Kmart at the time for clothes. And it, it's a joke, and it's a joke, <laughs> or supposed to be a joke. You know, that's like, so funny. I mean, talk about not editing him. Like that's something I think an editor would be like, you yeah, know. Yeah, just picture like <laughs> Tim Gunn like stepping in and like critiquing the outfit, and it's like, uh, this is not the right time for. Like- <laughs> This is the be- This is a, a clinical lust treatise. Uh, for men, I think love is a thing formed of equal parts lust and astonishment. The astonishment, the astonishment part, women understand. The lust part, they only think they understand. Very few, perhaps one in twenty, have any concept of what it really is or how <laughs> I, deep I, it I, runs. I, I, 
I, I underlined that too, the one in 20. Like, that's super fucking specific, Steve. I know. Like, Cite your sources, please. Um, <laughs> any other bits of misery before we talk about some of the uh, brighter brighter spots in this novel? There's there's too many. Like, there's just like a lot of <laughs> yeah. moments. We, we are so. King fans. Sorry if you're listening, Stephen. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, a horny book and it, it misses more than it hits. Hey, man. We still love you, Steve. Of course. But, that's, you know. that's the joy of this podcast is... We yeah. love some. We don't love some. So um, your features are we see clean him as a full, perfectly made. <laughs> I was going to say we see him as a full person. <laughs> it's I very true. See him as a daddy. So he is daddy. <laughs> uh, let's let's hop on over to uh, our word processor of the gods. Talk about some of the good stuff. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, what the, the fuck you hear me doing in here when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. Now, do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? Here in Word Processor of the Gods, we talk about passages we really liked, uh, things we really enjoyed in the story. Um, I'm going to kick it off because I thought this was a pretty unnerving section. Um, I almost put it in the cemetery, but I, I also just thought the writing was good. Um, this is when he's talking about having measles when he was a kid. I caught the measles when I was eight and I was very ill. I thought you were going to die, my father told me once, and he was not a man given to exaggeration. He told me about how he and my mother had dunked me in a tub of cold water one night, both of them at least half convinced the shock of it would stop my heart, but both of them completely convinced that I'd burn up before their eyes if they didn't do something. I had begun to speak in a loud, monotonously discursive voice about the bright figures I saw in the room. Angels come to bear me away, my terrified mother was sure. And the last time my father took my temperature before the cold plunge, he said that the mercury on the old Johnson & Johnson rectal thermometer had stood at 106 degrees. After that, he said he didn't dare take it anymore. I don't remember any bright figures, but I remember a strange period of time that was like being in a funhouse corridor where several different movies were showing at once. The world grew elastic, bulging in places where it had never bulged before, wavering in places where it had always been solid. People, most of them seeming impossibly tall, darted in and out of my room on scissoring cartoonish legs. Their words all came out booming with instant echoes. Someone shook a pair of baby shoes in my face. I seemed to remember my brother, City, sicking his hand into his shirt and making repeated arm fart noises. Continuity broke down. Everything came in segments. Weird wieners on a poison string. Um, I think that's all good, except the weird wieners on a poison string, uh, because I don't know what that means, really. But uh, but the rest of that, I think, is like a really cool... Uh, uh, description that is kind of eerie to me just about um, moments where, uh, you know, reality and this has happened to me when I've had food poisoning before. Uh, one time I had such bad food poisoning, I was like hallucinating in the middle of the night in the bathroom. And it was like one of the scariest experiences of my life. And uh, this reminded me of that in very cool ways. I think like the, the super tall people with scissoring legs is very spooky to me. Um, I love that. So any other bits of uh, word processor from the gods you'd like to share? Mel? I think the wife corpse fuck is like one of the best Stephen King erotic sequences that I have read. Yeah. Um, here, here it is. She laughed, then leaned back on her haunches and stared at me. Her navel was a tiny black cup. There was something queerly, attractively snake-like in her posture. Everything down there is death, she said, and pressed her cold palms and white pruny fingers to my cheeks. She turned my head and then bent it so I was looking into the lake. Under the water, I saw decomposing bodies slipping by, pulled by some deep current. Their wet eyes stared, their fish-nibbled noses gaped. Their tongues lolled between white lips like tendrils of water weed. 
Some of the dead trailed pallid balloons of jellyfish guts. Some were little more than bone. Yet not even the sight of this floating charnel parade could divert me from what I wanted. I shrugged my head free of her hands, pushed her down on the boards, and finally cooled what was so hard and contentious, sinking it deep. Her moon-silvered eyes stared up at me through me, and I saw that one pupil was larger than the other. That was how her eyes had looked on the TV monitor when I had identified her in the Derry County morgue. She was dead. My wife was dead, and I was fucking her corpse. Nor could even that realization stop me. Who was he? I cried at her, covering her cold flesh as it lay on the wet boards. Yeah. Fuck yeah, Steve. That I had that in the up. Yeah, I had that in the cemetery. I love that because that creeped me out too. I love that whole section. I think it's excellent. Um, uh, Fleeg, you got anything? Yeah, I just did a couple. That's I had that one pegged as well. Now <laughs> I thought that was creepy as hell. It reminded me of Pet Cemetery too at the end, the dead wife. Um, a couple just the shorter quotes I found that I really like is mm-hmm. one is grief is like a drunken house guest mm-hmm. always coming back for one more goodbye hug. Like I can relate to that. Um, the one about humor, humor is almost always anger with its makeup on. And I think, but in little town or excuse me, I think, but in little towns, the makeup tends to be thin. Mm, I like the idea too, of the humor actually being anger. I'm a big Conan O'Brien fan and the documentary Conan O'Brien can't stop. You see him getting impatient and he's making jokes, but you can see there's like, Oh man, hate hate behind his eyes. And I just love that when people are like, yeah, I'm guilty of that as well. Right. Um, uh, and then one that I just thought is like a good reminder. It reminded me of a Boardwalk Empire quote, but uh, he's like, I stayed though because boredom is good. People with a high tolerance for boredom can get a lot of thinking done. Yeah. And I'm a person who gets bored easily and it's, you know, it can lead to bad behaviors or destructive behaviors or just waste of time. But people that can actually be content to be bored, you know, and peaceful in the moment, I think that's a really good reminder. So whenever I see a quote about embracing boredom, I don't know, that just jumps out to me. Nice. How about you, Anna? I had one, but I'm going to save a couple. I'm going to save one of them for cemetery. But I, I've referenced how much I like some of his his descriptions of the writing process, especially that feeling of flow. Mm-hmm. So this is one of them. I returned to the fridge and once more forgot to open it. My hands went to the magnets instead, and again began moving them around, watching as words formed, broke apart, evolved. It was a particular kind of writing, but it was writing. I could tell by the way I was starting to trance out. That half-hypnotized state is one you cultivate until you can switch it on and off at will, or at least you can when things are going well. The intuitive part of the mind unlocks itself when you begin to work and rises to a height of about six feet, maybe 10 on good days. Once there, it simply hovers, sending black magic messages and bright pictures. For the balance of the day, that part is locked to the rest of the machinery and goes pretty much forgotten, except on certain occasions when it comes loose on its own and you trance out unexpectedly your mind making associations which have nothing to do with rational thought and glaring with unex- and glaring with unexpected images. That is in some ways the strangest part of the creative process. The muses are ghosts and sometimes they come uninvited. I liked that because I'm actually curious about what other people maybe have this experience, but I have had the experience, sometimes it comes with reading, mm-hmm. where if I get really absorbed, it is like coming back from a dream. Yeah. Like, and then if I, I – this used to happen to me as a kid when I would read in class a lot. Like the I would be, you know, because I was bored and I would be back at the class reading sometimes a Stephen King novel. Yeah. And the bell would ring and I would have to look up and everything would seem kind of unreal. Yeah. You know, like it was the class that was the dream. Right. It was the class that was imaginary. And I feel like 
this description kind of for it evoked that for me. Does that do it for writing for you as well? There are times when I have, I mean, I, like I said, I also, I guess it's pretty normal, I think, to have writer's block, but um, there are times when I have been so into a piece that it will be one of those things where time stops existing. Yeah. And I, it will be like many hours into like the night or the day and I'll look up and have sort of what he had, what happens with him at one point where like the sun is in a different place. Yeah. And there is this sort of dreamlike feeling of, oh, wait, <laughs> like where, where am I? You know? Yeah. I wish that happened more often. It's, 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 it's strangely pleasant. And the last thing I'll say is that sometimes when I had my, when I got drunk for the first time, mm-hmm. it felt a little like that. Yeah. I was going to yeah, say, I, I, I know drug that experiences that, yeah, like very similar where you almost like dissociate from what's around you and you just get sort of locked in this moment. Yeah, that's happened to me with writing before. I felt like it happened more when I was younger. I miss it, honestly, because I, mm-hmm. I feel like I did some of my best writing in moments like that. Um, and it's something I'm sort of chasing again now, I feel like. Uh, but I do still have times where I can't believe how much time has passed, like when I've got my head down writing, you know. And uh, I don't know. How about you, Mel? Is that Does that ring true for you or are you, or are you just more workmanlike with it? Uh, it's been a long time, honestly. I feel like I am also chasing what used to happen to me when I was on role-playing forums and like <laughs> yeah. inventing inventing those types of worlds. Um, it can still happen. It does happen with reading, reading more if I'm really into something um, that I think mm-hmm. is beautiful and like philosophically resonant than coming out of it. it does take a while and you're kind of like, ooh, I have to recalibrate. Right, right. I can say with the uh, video games also. Oh yeah, sure. that's yeah. intellectual. <laughs> sure. But like, there's a lot of times where you just get locked into this, like, like you were saying, like a flow state or even or fucking state. because <laughs> fucking and writing are the same thing. Hundred <laughs> um, percent. I've got one last one here. Uh, this is just, uh, I think, a nice meditation on on perseverance uh, following grief. Um, this is how we go on: one day at a time, one meal at a time, one pain at a time, one breath at a time. Dentists go on one root canal at a time. Boat boat builders go on one hull at a time. If you write books, you go on one page at a time. We turn from all we know and all we fear. We study catalogs, watch football games, choose sprint over AT&T. We count the birds in the sky and will not turn from the window when we hear the footsteps behind us as something uh, comes up the hall. We say yes. I agree that clouds often look like other things, fish and unicorns and men on horseback. But they are really only clouds. Even when the lightning flashes inside them, we say they are only clouds and turn our attention to the next meal, the next pain, the next breath, the next page. This is how we go on. I just like the flow of that. Um, It feels like a moment when, you know, it's like the opposite of him, like giggling as he writes. You know, it feels like something like when he's writing about, you know, extremely fat, evil people or whatever. It's like uh, this feels more like something he perhaps wrote when he was in that transcendent, uh, you know, sort of um, drifting state. And I think that's what I love about it has a poetry to it. Um, Any other uh, word processors before we uh, hop on over to the cemetery? I love whenever King goes off for a second about thinness between the worlds. And there was a moment on four. That's in my cemetery. Um, I'll just read like a couple sentences of it when he's looking at the storm and they're about to go back to the house. Um, The sky was as black as coal dust flashing almost constantly with internal lightnings. The air had a clear ochre glow Every breath I took tasted like the shavings in a tinderbox. The topography beyond the ridge stood out with a surreal clarity I cannot forget. 
That sense of mystery swarmed my heart and mind. That sense of the world as thin skin over unknowable bones and gulfs. That last bit, like with swarmed and bones and like body lit. Like, I love it. That's great. Cool. Let's, uh, let's mosey on over to the cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. Here in the cemetery, we talk about the stuff that creeped us out, the stuff that sent shivers up our spines. Um, I want to uh, kick it off. This is on page 53, and this is kind of stuck with me. Um, and perhaps it's because I always find shrouded figures very creepy. Uh, it's always been a thing um, for me. It's like alien face, right, Mel? It's like I have alien face. I have two things that scare me, alien faces and people with shrouds. Uh, that's why I hate. <laughs> what about an alien face under like a wedding veil? Oh, man, you pull oh, back that geez. veil. I'm I'm <laughs> not coming back. My mind is gone. Uh, but this is on page 53. This is in his dream he's having about Sarah Laughs, the cabin. And I just found this really creepy. Um, I think I want to scream. I think I mean to turn around and run back up the driveway. I will take my chances with the thing behind me. But before I can, the back door of Sarah Laughs opens and a terrible figure comes darting out into the growing darkness. It is human, this figure, and yet it's not. It is a crumpled white thing with baggy arms upraised. There is no face where its face should be, and yet it is shrieking in a glottal loon-like voice. It must be Joanna. She was able to escape her coffin, but not her winding shroud. She is all tangled up in it. How hideously speedy this creature is. It doesn't drift as one imagines ghosts drifting, but races across the stoop towards the driveway. It has been waiting down here during all the dreams when I when I had been frozen, and now that I have finally been able to walk down, it means to have me. I'll scream when it wraps me in its silk arms, and I will scream when I s- smell its rotting, bug-rattled flesh and see its dark, staring eyes through the fine weave of the cloth. I will scream as the sanity leaves my mind forever. I will scream, but there is no one out here to hear me. Only the loons will hear me. I have come again to Manderley, and this time I will never leave. Um, when he says how hideously speedy this creature is with an mm. exclamation point, I love that. And that to me feels like very gothic lit or at least like, you know, old school, like just that concept of like the exclamation point is something I've seen in sort of the early gothic literature that I've read where it's just kind of like how hideous it is. You know, I uh, <laughs> like I love that. It's it's it just kind of sends a chill up my spine. But that that image of this thing rushing out of the house towards you and being fast like that to me is uh, is I, I love the way King describes movement a lot with what way he talks about on unnatural creatures moving i i still remember perhaps the scariest and it's 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 it maybe sounds like hyperbole for me to say that but the section in salem's lot where um I believe it's like an officer or something. I can't remember what character it is, but uh, see Susan. It's the first time we see Susan as a vampire. And then the way he describes the way she moves down the hill, it's very eerie to me. And um, and I guess this is sort of, uh, you know, the opposite of that in that it's a very fast monster, but uh, very spooky to me. So um, what other what else do you guys have? What What's scared you? So this is actually another thinness between worlds uh, section. Mm-hmm. Um, and not all of it is super beautiful, but I it, it jammed with me just how scared was i as i approached sarah laughs i don't remember i expect the fright like pain is one of those things that slip our minds once they have passed what i do remember feeling is a feeling i'd had before when i was down here especially when i was walking this road by myself 
it was a sense that reality was thin. I think it is thin, you know, thin as lake ice after a thaw, and we fill our lives with noise and light and motion to hide that thinness from ourselves. But in places like Lane 42, you find all that smoke and mirrors have been removed. What's left is the sound of crickets and the sight of green leaves darkening towards black, branches that make shapes like faces, the sound of your heart in your chest, the beat of blood against the backs of your eyes, and the look of the sky as the day's blue blood runs out of its cheek. What comes in when the daylight leaves is a kind of certainty, that beneath the skin there is a secret, some mystery both black and bright. You feel this mystery in every breath. You see it in every shadow. You expect to plunge into it at every step. It is here. You slip across it on a kind of breathless curve, like a skater turning for home. Mm. Love that final image. Yeah. Sometimes he really drops the ball with the final metaphor, but sometimes he hits it. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, also like the little things in this one, like the look of the sky as the day's blue blood runs out of its cheek is like so unexpected and creepy kind yeah. of at the same time. Like I said, that's not, I mean, I guess I've never, what I love about horror books and, and about King in particular, like the, the scary, scary stuff you know, like the thumping in the basement and, mm-hmm. and, and, and actually I would say this, this, the drowning scene, yeah, that stuff's great, you know, but what, what keeps me up at night is literally the stuff about the thinness between worlds Yeah, because that feels like that could be true, you know, yeah. like maybe the world is there, maybe there is a thinness between the worlds mm-hmm. and who knows like what, what could happen. Yeah. Damn. Me, uh, just on the, I mean, obviously, like the Sarah attack is very disturbing. Um, but one passage within it that I found especially disturbing is when her son Keto shows up and she's just hoping, you know, he, she wants him to pick blueberries a little bit longer, not to come up and see. Um, so I believe it's Harry when they see him. Uh, or no, so Jared grabs Keto and it says, Jared sinks his fingers deeper, pumping and choking at the same time. At the same time, the sweat is pouring off him. No amount of washing will take the smell of that sweat out of these clothes. And when he begins to think of it as murder sweat, he burns the clothes to get shed of it. Yeah. Just like the idea of like the outfit you burned or you killed someone in. And then, you know, it's the out damn spot, Lady Macbeth, but also just like there probably would be like when you have that sort of adrenaline running, like I'm sure a dog could detect the hormones coming through your sweat pores, right? It's a different (laughs) sweat when it's fight or flight mode. Um, But I also thought too, that it was very disturbing the, just, you know, how Sarah's like reflex is to laugh. Yeah. So when the guys are kind of sizing her up and, or in like literally seizing her, she starts mocking that. Like she cannot help, but even in that situation, make fun of them. And it just makes them angrier and you know that it's just pouring gas on the fire. Yeah. So that was a part that I had to like go back and reread. Cause I was like, man, that was like, and for as slow as a lot of the other parts of this book are like that, the carnival or whatever, the traveling County fair. Yeah. Those are the parts I just really got into because I was like, okay, there's something happening. It's like pumping me up a little bit. And I don't know. It jumped out. It was definitely scary. I wish more of the book had stuff like that happening, but it does finish pretty strong. Yeah. I uh, I think I agree a lot with you, Mel, too. Just all the ghost stuff in the house, like the scream that cuts through, uh, the crying that cuts through. And this section on page uh, 134, um, when he has the the recording um like he took a recording and he says uh i rewound it hesitated with my finger over the play button told myself in joe's voice not to be a fool and pushed it 
oh, Mike, a voice whispered, mourned almost on the tape. And I found myself having to press the heel of one hand to my mouth to hold back a scream. It was what I had heard in Joe's office when the draft rushed past the sides of my face. Only now the words were slowed down just enough for me to understand them. Oh, Mike, it said again. There was a faint click. The music machine had shut down for some length of time. And then once more spoken in the living room as I had slept in the North Wing. Oh, Mike, then it was gone. Um, that kind of stuff is is some of my favorite uh, stuff. I guess what I always found funny, and I saw this in a couple, and maybe a couple of reviews, was just like, this shit is so scary. And he's always just kind of like, okay, back to writing. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? And I know it's because he's sort of existing in this heightened state of, of uh, the zone or whatever, but it's very funny to me. Like, that shit would make me run for the hills. <laughs> Uh, Mel, what do you have? Um, I had Joe under the bed at the very like first kind of like big jump scary moment. That's yeah. like when she's like, that's my dust catcher. I think that's scary. Um, there were some good gore moments near the end. Yeah. I liked when he hit Footman with the hammer and it says the sound was horrible. The spray of blood erupting from the flying hair was horrible. But worst of all was the feeling of the skull giving way a spongy collapse that came right up the handle and into my fingers. Yeah. Get that spongy collapse. Love also, Rajet's death is pretty gross. Yeah, I actually, that was one of the things I remembered uh, going into this reading. I didn't remember a lot, but I remembered her face like being gored by yeah. a piece of the deck. Because I, I, you know, when I read this when I was a kid, I was a big gore hound. So I remember I that stuck with me. Um, yeah, and yeah, I remember, I, I'm, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, just to add to that, I remember that Italian movie, Zombie. Yeah. Where the woman gets pulled toward the wood that's sticking out and it just goes right through her head. Ugh, creepy. Yeah, there's a similar moment in Fulci's, um, I, th- I believe, The Beyond. The Beyond. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. such a fucked up shit. Um, They're yeah, both I've got- Fulci, aren't they? Yeah, they yeah. both are Fulci. Yeah. Um, good Italian horror. He was good with that eye horror. But uh, but in yeah. Zombie, I mean, a zombie fights a shark. So look yeah. that up. Yeah, I, I can talk about that movie forever. But uh, Page oh, 406. Awesome. This, is an, this is the other section I remembered from when I was a kid. I remember this really creeped me out. I read it before bed when I was young. And, uh, and I feel like I had to go have a midnight snack or something. But I said, uh, it says, I woke in the middle of the night with someone running a hot finger up and down the middle of my back. I rolled over and when the lightning flashed, I saw there was a woman in bed with me it was sarah tidwell she was grinning there were no pupils in her eyes oh sugar i'm almost back she whispered in the dark i had a sense of her reaching out for me again but when the next flash of lightning came that side of the bed was empty just good uh good jump scare uh horror there i think there's a lot of that kind of stuff in this but um but yeah it's good stuff anna anything else for you nope cool anything else from y'all all right well, it's time. We've been walking around the cemetery. We're getting a little hungry. It's time to feast on some pound cake. After all you've been taught, everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, mom. You like him. You really like him, mama. I mean, how we could spend another hour on pound cake. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't understand like how I'm supposed to like limit the pound cake to a single slice. Oh, well, I feel like uh, a lot of it we covered in misery, but yeah, there is more. We did. Cool. Okay, so welcome to Pound Cake. Here on Pound Cake, we talk about uh, 
the stuff that made us laugh in perhaps unintentional ways, uh, and also the sloppy, filthy stuff, although we already touched on a lot of it, but um, I think a lot of the ones I had were like him and Joe's sex which rituals. Uh, so and- early, like we go, we start fast. <laughs> yep. Yeah, fast and hard. Um, the phrase trouser mouse, I'm like, sir, you are 40 years old. You are not allowed to say <laughs> things like that. Uh, what, what do you guys have in the pound cake forum? I like um, I'm when trying he, to look up sorry when he finishes his first book and it's like a big deal that she's like reading it and he's like checking up on her and like oh shit is it good you know and he finally comes back and he she's done and he's well I said it's good she said now why don't you come inside and do me <laughs> I have that <laughs> I have the uh I like during the deposition when they ask if he's having a sexual relationship with her he says yeah Together, we look at pictures of naked, maldeformed dwarves as foreplay. I saw that. I, I I almost wrote that down. That's so weird. I know. It's just it's such a writer thing to be like, oh, look how creative I am with this little. Is that conference. King's Dominion with Needful Things, Randall? Uh, <laughs> I think so. I think that's a good a good deep cut. A room two three seven, we might say. I think that's the footman from. <laughs> I'm looking for one of the many places where he talks about his enormous dick. <laughs> On page twenty six. Um, yeah, I know how that is. See ya, Mikey. Okay, Frank, keep your wee-wee in the teepee. Guy talk. I guy, just talk. guy talk. <laughs> yeah, guy talk. Guy talk. That is not guy talk. That is not, as Donald Trump might put it, locker room talk. Yeah, I've been in a lot of locker rooms where we're like, yo, bro, you take your wee-wee out? Wee-wee in the teepee? <laughs> guy talk. I love the uh, the bathing suit fantasy on 66 for me. Um, I wanted her upstairs just as she was in that photograph with strands of her hair pasted to her cheeks and that wet bathing suit clinging to her. I wanted to suck her nipples through the halter top, (laughs) taste the cloth and feel their hardness through it. I wanted to suck water out of the cotton like milk, then yank the bottom of her suit off and fuck her until we both exploded. (laughs) Steven, you are out of control. I I picture them literally exploding like full body. (laughs) (laughs) And that that gets us. Thank you so much for getting me to... um, uh, the quickest way to solve a problem like that is when there's no woman around to help you solve it is to masturbate. But that time, the idea never crossed my mind. Instead, I walked restlessly through the upstairs house. So I can just it, it, restlessly through the upstairs room of my house with my fist opening and closing and what looked like a hood ornament stuffed down the front of my jeans. <laughs> What's wrong with your dick? <laughs> What's wrong? <laughs> like, what is it a Mercedes? Because like, what? What hood ornament? What? What? <laughs> like I, I'm guessing maybe Oldsmobile. Those are kind of rectangular. Yeah. But <laughs> either like way, the, uh, probably the, not good. The uh, Bunter Moosehead. Yeah. Oh, I'm a big uh, uh, theme park ringing enthusiast. Ringing Bunter's bell. And the uh, yeah, they ring the bell. Uh, but the Country Bear Jamboree, they have like the animatronic stuffed heads on the wall. So I just picture them getting nasty, and then you zoom up, and the moose is like <laughs> <laughs> wink. <laughs> Bunter. <laughs> Um, his um, first wet dream was a girl lying naked in a hammock eating a plum, which I was like, okay, wow. whatever gets yeah, you Yeah, literary off. fiction. <laughs> <laughs> um, when he is getting the hand job in the dream from Sarah and she's teasing him, first it starts with him going, oh, you're killing me, I cried. <laughs> the typewriter, 30 or so pounds of IBM Selectric was shaking back and forth in my arms. I could feel my muscles twanging like guitar strings. 
Do you want to know who he was, Sugar? That nasty man. Just do me, you bitch. I scream. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, yep. Somebody needs a spray bottle, like, just chase Steven <laughs> around whenever he gets like this. <laughs> the, the sweat formed in her crease. And the heat, the heat oh, made it yeah. hot, and the pink comes glimmering through a spray <laughs> bottle. I actually think that's good. No, I mean, I, I'm saying I need a spray bottle for that. Yeah. Psst, psst, psst. Just uh, do me, you bitch. Just do me, you bitch. Um, um, Anna, anything else for you in the pound cake section? I could open pages at random, I feel like sometimes, <laughs> but um, none of us have done the way, like her. I guess it's because like I'm with you, Mel. Like some of the sex stuff is good, mm-hmm. you know? It's just so horny. It's just that the, it's just it's so there's so much of it that's that's kind of what makes it pound cakey to me yeah. when i say the whole book is yeah. pound cake it's not even that like some that there is some like quirky only king could write like bad sex stuff but then there's like king does good sex scenes too there's just like this might be a record yeah you know for how many of them there are especially since no one has actual sex <laughs> yeah that's what i was gonna say there's very little actual sex in this book there's no real time sex he doesn't like, have sex with anyone sex. Even, and sexual he assault come, is the only thing he doesn't come in the three girl dream Oh, I thought like, he did. He does in the dream, but remember oh, he's he like does in the dream, but he didn't in real life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like so, he's like expecting to find semen everywhere. <laughs> yeah. like, I can't. Just ropes hanging from yeah. the lamp, you know. <laughs> Ew, Randall, you didn't have Sorry. to. Sorry, <laughs> I know that was that was what Mel calls a Randall bomb. I drop him occasionally in the text. Thread. A Rand bomb. A Rand bomb. No, it's a Rand mine. Rand mine. Oh yeah, Rand mine. That's better. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I. Uh, I agree. Yeah, like the triple fuck sequence, the dream sequence is, is pretty excellent, even with the do me you bitch in there. Um, but I think like it's it's built to such a fever pitch by that point. <laughs> it almost feels like cathartic. <laughs> so, um, all right, cool. Let's walk off some of that pound cake in a place we call King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. Here in King's Dominion, we talk about uh, the connections to other King works and who boy, like, it's kind of funny. I think about like the early books when we had no King's Dominion and we would always joke like, ah, wait till we get to the later ones. And those later ones, we've arrived, oh man, because he loves uh, uh, incorporating his his diverse world. Uh, okay. Right and now. yet, can I just say, I was so disappointed that this man lives in Derry and we get nothing no Pennywise, about, yeah. about how Derry yep. is fucked. Like not, I would be fine with even just like, Dairy felt weird sometimes, but like... Yeah, but you get multiple insomnia references. I don't care. <laughs> Speaking of, we get... I haven't read insomnia. Literally on page one, we we uh, get to re-meet Joe Weiser, who is a, a you know minor character in insomnia as a local pharmacist. Uh, we get to catch up with him a little bit. I was happy to see him again. We also meet Mr. Ralph Roberts, protagonist of uh, insomnia on page 57. Uh, Mike uh, shares some ice cream with him, I think. And he also was... calls out that he is an insomniac in the passage. It's true. Yeah. yeah. So a little bit of some hints there. Um any other that well, I have many, but um, I'm yeah. just going to open the door. In we case. should just we should just rattle these off. There's the dark half. On well, we find right. out with the dark half. Uh, we learn. Be- oh, the suicide. Yeah, we find. Well, no, you can say it. It's uh, we find out that <laughs> it's the episode they've read the book. Yeah, <laughs> well, I just actually I just I feel like I'm interrupting. Oh, no, yeah, no, no, you're the- fine. But yeah, we find out that Thad Beaumont 
committed suicide, which I believe in Needful Things, we get an, an update on him as well. And I believe they just say that his wife left him. So we've kind of witnessed the unraveling of that character through uh, third hand or second hand sources, um, you know, uh, throughout the last uh, couple Castle Rock Dairy books, which is very, very sad. So Thad, uh, rest in peace. Your fate and has I been sealed. I lose track of all the last names that he reuses, but I feel like everyone in the town has like a familiar yes. last name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I tracked all those, we'd be here all day. Uh, Bill Denbro, yeah. I guess, is is an oh. explicit it connection. Yep. 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 Creatures from beats him on the, the bestseller universe. list. Yeah, his yeah his book. better writer than he is. Kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, although um, he did an interview recently for Billy Summers, I believe, where somebody asked him who was the best of his fictional writers. And he said Mike Noonan. But you know why? Because he's his twinner. So yeah. there you go. Um, uh, we get a Dean Koontz mention on page 34 because uh, he's name dropping a lot of authors. So I throw that in King's Dominion because we all know <laughs> uh, Dean Koontz is part of part of the world here. Um, Shawshank. Uh, there's and a good old Shawshank. I, I think this is something in The Shining are these the voices of our dead friends or just the gramophone? Mm. I didn't catch I believe that that's one. a piece of poetry that he, he cites in The Shining. The Shining is full of like pieces of poetry that he doesn't ever like give a citation for. Oh, really? <laughs> um, well, not full. Like there's a, there's a few, but I'm pretty sure that that line is in The Shining or it's in some other King book, but I, I know I know it. And I, I don't read a ton of poetry. So, yeah. Speaking and I didn't bother Googling it. I'm sorry. I finished this book at two o'clock in the morning. Last night. <laughs> I was going to say, speaking of Native American attacks, uh, the oh. reference that the land might be Micmac burial territory. Yeah, I saw that. Which yeah. is from Pet Cemetery. Mm-hmm. It's the same tribe. Yeah. Um, we get an update on Alan Pangborn and Polly Chalmers from Needful Things. We they're happy together, unlike Thad Beaumont. So some some people are doing all right. In the phone book, one name that I did flag is Dubay, which is. Yep. Christine, right? Yep, yep, Debay. That's the the bad boy from Christine. We get a mention of the Wendigo. It's just kind of a passing reference, but Pet Cemetery again. Um, and he also, I believe he there's I let me bring it up. 372. Uh he brings up the idea of a doorway where you could go back in time. And it's yes. very it's pretty much the plot of 112263. And I think he even mentions JFK at one point. So clearly that stuff was in his head. I mean, he had been working on that story for you know, decades. Um, um, there's 19, go 19 down or whatever. Yep. Um, yeah, I got some 19 action. I was going to say, the uh, after the storm hits the old timers, they say, twasn't the storm of the century. Yep. Which was the miniseries that was in production for ABC. Yeah, literally, we're discussing it next month um, in October. Uh, so that's going to be very fun. What else here? Uh, Norris Ridgwick, uh, who is in Needful Things and I believe the Dark Half and and also Lisey's story. He shows up uh, to, you know, survey the situation in the end. And uh, oh, this is actually oh, this was like serendipitous timing in a weird way, because uh, we were talking about Stud City, the story within uh, the, bo- the body um, on our archives episode, which is available on Patreon. If you want to become a Patreon subscriber, it's a very good series we're doing talking about uh, the uncollected and unpublished Stephen King shorts. And uh, uh, in reading Stud City, revisiting it, both the version that was originally published as well as the one that was uh, revised heavily and put into the body. Um, there's a line in the revised version about um, how can a woman look at a man's erect penis and not laugh, which is ah. a great line. And it's also used in this book. But that line was literally uh, also in Stud City. Question. Going back to 1122, there's the moment where he's coming out of the the fair back in time bit and he's like trying to find his way through the dark back to his house and it says as i stood before the second pair of doorways 
I heard a voice somewhere in the dark say quite clearly, no, the president's wife wasn't hit. That's his blood on her stocking. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. I know. I, that's the thing was, and he was working on 1122, that story. So uh, maybe he didn't know that he was that he was going to publish it and just, or maybe he did and wanted to tease it. Um, I mean, that book wouldn't come out for another, you know, 12 years, I think. So yeah. Um, another, another Lisi story. Um, he looks at Joe's oh. Uh, Afghan. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. Multiple and messages. And, uh, and also this might be more room 237, but one of the characters says happy crappy. Yep. I wrote that down. <laughs> which is not, I think, just a, a na- main expression. It's that very, it's very particularly to Christine, right? Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's used in particular to King, I guess. It's used. The kid uses it a lot in the stand. That's kind of I oh, think that's most right. people that's associated right. with him. But it's also in um, the body because I just revisited that. Teddy oh, says right. it as well. So yeah, I think it's just a main thing. But I think a lot of King readers, I know our listeners, uh, associate it with the kid. Um, there's a really big one that I'm that no one's called out yet. And uh, is it that there's a literal bag of bones in the book? No, but that's a good that's a good one. Um, has anyone here read The Long Walk? Do you remember the name of the protagonist? Oh, no, I do not. His name is Ray Garrity, which is the name of the serial killer in the book. And I Whoa. remember when I was a kid reading this for the first time, I was like, what? Like, I the idea that he would just reuse the name uh, for like just for kicks I was so mad about that because I was like, are you somehow bringing Ray Garrity from the long walk into this book? And I was and so making excited. Him a serial killer. I know because I love the long walk. That's like one of my faves. And so I remember being very dissatisfied by that, but now it's just, you know, a thing King does now. And then like literally in Billy Summers, uh, uh, there's a character named Alice Maxwell. There's also one in cell. So it's um just, you know, bizarre. They're two different people. But. I'm going to claim The Outsider as King's Dominion. I think you can. I think you can. I think you can, yeah. <laughs> I, I will say I, 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 I puzzled over that because for me, the, the, the manifestation here didn't align with how I see it in there. But you are right. Like, he is intentional about how he uses these things. So I do think that he definitely uh, was, was, uh, was intentional with that. I'm sure we're going to see more outsiders too. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the Gibney. The, he, if he's going to stick with Gibney, he's gotta. That's the Gibney. Oh God! <laughs> mic, we just had a mic drop. That's the Gibney. Yeah. Mic drop. We're leaving that in. Um, Mel's computer we drop. We also have uh, the TR90, the unincorporated town, also makes appearances in the girl who loved Tom Gordon, Cell Under the Dome, and If It Bleeds. Nice. Tom Gordon coming um, up uh, later this year. I was going to say, Lisey's story again. We have vomiting of lake water. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't right. make that connection. Oh, there is also, I'm sorry to just be like a, a vague reference to this. I should have been more careful in, in marking it down. But I feel like there is some vaguely we all go, not not literally we all go down to drink there, but there's some, I think it's when he's talking about the writing process. Mm, yes, and yes. Like, I remember that. There's. There's some kind of like gesture towards that same idea. Yeah. I think it's when he's and, just when it's like when he's talking about publishing, I think, and stuff um, and talking about the different authors. I could be wrong, but um, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So there's one other that I caught, which is there's a Royce Merrill who's mentioned. Oh, right. I, yeah. yeah. I can only yeah. assume he's part of the, the Merrill clan um, who we go your, on to your meet. Your fave bullies. I love my bullies, man. Uh so yeah, and then um, I the only other one I had is a room two three seven. Uh, King 
King mentions a hippie compound or, or a hippie commune, which is such like a silly sort of concept, I think, in some ways. But in Golden Years, the, t- the miniseries, uh, it, that culminates at a hippie commune and one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen in television where a, a hippie character is talking to the cops and trying to say like, Hey, like, you know, um, it's all good, man. And then he gets shot in the stomach and it's one of the funniest like <laughs> reveals I've ever, cause it's Jeez. like the, the squib is like really shockingly kind of gruesome. And, uh, and it's like it happens in the middle of this like because the hippies are all like hey man peace and love like really corny like versions of it because that that show is the most confused show ever made um but yeah anyways that's my room 237 um i think oh and then the other other big one is the raft obviously because there's a lot of talk about the lake he loves floats in the yeah in the lakes and so when they were boning on the raft in the dream i of course thought of the the oil slick, you know, uh, grabbing the girl's hair in the story and consuming her face, which is still to me probably one of the most indelible King horror images. Um, Agreed. Any others that you guys have? Yeah. I have, so the guy that actually does the shooting and gets sent to Shawshank, mm-hmm. his name is Randolph Footman, initials RF. Oh, shit. Flag. Good one. Um, in one of the dreams that Mike has, there's also three of him he mentions. Um, he sees three of himself. And in... The Dark Tower series, Stephen King literally permeates as ego, super ego, and id. So if he is a twinner of Stephen King, that would be the Mike Noonan ego, super ego, and id. And finally, the one of the one of the locals says they're talking about you know the stress of the day, and they say, "Let the rest of it hang, hang high where the crows can pick at it." And in the Gunslinger. The chef of Gilead hacks is hanged for treason and crows pick at him while he's being hanged. Those are some deep ones. Deep lore. Love it. Uh, Cool. Let's hop on over to our final thoughts. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. (laughs) Okay, I'll be right there. You said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. Oh, boy. Uh, final thoughts. We share our final thoughts on a rating of one to five bright red Pennywise clown noses. And we also name an MVP. Who is the MVP of the book? Um, Dan, why don't you kick us off? Uh, where do you stand on this one? <sighs> so, like we said in the beginning, I don't remember having read this before. And then as I was reading it, it triggered the memory. But I think it's because the book to me was so unremarkable that it just did not leave that impression. And I can remember silly things from childhood that nobody should even remember. But I could not remember reading this book as a grown adult. (laughs) So I don't think that speaks very well to the subject matter, the story arc, or even the characters. There were parts that I liked in this. It felt unfinished, despite the fact that it was cut down from a thousand pages. There are just too many loose threads. I don't think it ages well with the current times as, you know, we got into that. Um, some of the character motivations, some of the phrasing, some of the outlook just on others doesn't age very well. So I don't think this will be held up as a timeless Stephen King book. I don't think he would still consider this one of his favorites. In fact, he was on Colbert recently and they asked for his top five books and this one was not included Wasn't there? in the list. Interesting. Not there. Uh, so for those reasons, I'm, I will have to give this two bright red Pennywise clown noses and... My MVP is whoever designed the cover art. (laughs) What a bold swing and still expect to keep your job. (laughs) Love it. Uh, Mel, what is your uh, bright red Pennywise clown nose ranking and MVP? 
I think that there is actually a really great gothic or ghost story appropriately buried deep in this book. (laughs) In a bag, maybe? In a bag. The idea of the central mystery, the way that King conveys its unfolding. You got this like dreamy mind meld. Um, You got great action sequences, these ghost sightings, the small town's collective subconscious. Um, Those parts are honestly very thrilling to me. Mm -hmm. I love the K names, the phone book, the communal haunting of the house, even the mention of the outsider that's corrupting Sarah's ghost. That's King at his best to me. It's bringing these supernatural scenes to life in a way that feels intuitive so that you glom onto the unreal and you just kind of get what he's going for. You know what he means when he says that certain ancestors are more solid or more dangerous in the dream world that isn't quite a dream. It's It just like clicks with your mind. In yeah, dream. that was cool too, yeah. Um, but the book takes about two thirds of its length to realize that it's been entirely atmospheric and unfocused up to that point. <laughs> and only then does it start to generate what I think of as its power. And I, I do think that even some of that front-loaded atmosphere is working. Like those dream sequences are really something, um, but the book is just so imbalanced. It's screaming under the heftier weight of its back end and the relatively plotting navel-gazing nature of Mike getting to the real questions. Mm-hmm. In a way, it actually mirrors how Mike can't see the guiding phrase owls under studio in his own manuscript until it's almost too late king doesn't seem to discover the best parts of this book until it's almost over (laughs) and even then he can't completely realize them i think the strange pulpy treatises on lust the way that the women are flimsy game pieces in mike's world mixed with the other grating elements of mike's voice really diminish the book and sometimes it seems on the brink of self-awareness as we've discussed And other times it seems helplessly, eye-rollingly juvenile in its pettiness and its attempts to ennoble being horny as fuck. (laughs) And it wants to be sophisticated and nasty at the same time. And like, it doesn't always succeed. When it does though, I think it's messiness and daring do lend it a memorable quality. Um, I'd say I'm left mostly frustrated by what could have been were this not such a vehicle for a very unexciting man um, and unexciting thoughts on the world of publishing and what it means to think a 21 year old is really, really hot. And I'd like to be clear that I have nothing against horny books or horny books that deal in age differences. I'm a huge Lolita fan, but I'd like them to treat the subject uh, a lot more deftly and interestingly than this one does. Um, I will give it, given all of that contradictory feedback, uh, 2.5 noses. Nice. MVP? Blueberry the dog. Oh, I love Blueberry. (laughs) That's a good poem. Uh, Anna, how about you? I agree with everything that Dan and Melanie have said. It, it's it, it's a frustrating book, yeah. and yet at the same time a boring book. Like, or it's it's you know the uh, it's the when you plus press play and erase at the same time on a tape, like <laughs> y- you forget it as it's happening. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, there is so much in there that could have been better. That's why it's frustrating, yeah. right? And it is unfortunate that the emotion I'm going to most associate with this book is going to be not liking the main character. <laughs> yeah. And, and that does kind of overpower everything. Uh, there are scenes that are really good. We just, I think it's, it is some of the best horny writing that's, that he's done. You know, it's just all in the service of this terrible person. <laughs> like, and literally in his service. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also, it, it, I will say that the book is going to leave me with one idea that I don't think he intended to leave, but 
does fascinate me, which is this idea of writing as a masturbatory act. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this idea of of writing as as a uh, you're as a place that can be a selfish world, that it can be a selfish act to to be in your own head in the way that some writers have to be. Yeah. Uh, I actually was going to give it just one bright red Pennywise note. You can. Uh, well, I think I might have been swayed by y'all. Um, except it's one of those books like I, I feel like I wouldn't recommend it to someone. Mm. You know, like if they said to me, like, what Stephen King book should I read? Like, is this going to show up in the top 20? <laughs> like, I think you it's know? a book for diehards. Yeah. Like, I, I, it's yeah, like he's done so much that's so much better. Mm-hmm. And it is really horny, though. You would be like, oh, you want to read his horniest book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. I wonder, do you want to read Stephen King's best sex scenes that are in one of his worst books? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I, I, I think I'm going to stick with one just because it is so disappointing. Sure. That all the good things in it don't add up to much. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, an MVP is uh, Max Devore. Yes. I do think <laughs> that I I would have taken much more of Max. I would have loved to have him be be all over this book. Um, I would have liked. We only see him once. I know. I can't believe it. It was just he's the he's the big bad in the book, and we only see him once, and it is quite a scene. You know. Yeah. Uh, so I think I would have liked a little more of him, and and he he does bring that gothic uh to to the story as well yeah so cool that's my mvp yeah i think these are some great thoughts you guys have had and i feel like i've learned a lot about the book just by chatting with you all about it yeah you know this is i i can see why i never revisited this book it's it's uh and king even admits it he says there's a bucket a bucket and a half of plot and i think that's ultimately what undoes it for me is it's too overstuffed and i you know i think the thing that i like about king all the time is his books do feel very uh, intentional and very well plotted and it's everything pays off. You know, I think about Needful Things where so many different he's juggling so many different plot lines and so many different characters. And, you know, the book's not perfect, but uh, the way that all of those things come together, it really is like like, a, you know, a Swiss watch or whatever. It's like the the machinery is astounding behind it all. And here it just feels really sloppy. Um, I feel like we get these really beautiful passages of writing a couple dream sequences that are some of the my favorite stuff that I've read in King. And I think that's like why I think I'm going to give this a better nose rating than all of you is because. I think while like I and also I wouldn't recommend this though like but at the same time there's stuff in this book that's creepier than anything I've read in King in ages you know I think some of the ghost stuff in Sarah laughs the screaming the crying um the uh the triple fuck dream sequence all of those things to me are are extremely effective and very powerful and uh but I really hate this character um very much so. We didn't get into it, uh, Mel. We had discussed because you had initially said he can't be worse than Guard uh, when I said that uh, from Tommy Knockers <laughs> when I was worse. doing this. But yeah, he's, he's worse because we're worse. with him the whole time. And... Yeah. Gar- yeah, he's worse. Gar spend, Guard spends most of the book in a drunken stupor. So after we get past the first hundred pages, we we were spared him for the most part. But but yeah, I think uh, I think this is sort of um, an exhausting book. It's very frustrating. And yeah, and I love what you said, Mel, just about like like everything piles up in that kind of last third and it becomes um, unwieldy and um, overwhelming to some degree. And I feel like we really don't spend um, the time 
we don't we don't spend time where it matters in this book. We spend way too much time litigating his a uh, you know a forty year old man's attraction to a twenty year old, and uh, in ways that are very muddled and not particularly illuminating. And I agree with you. It's like it's it's not. I'm not in you know age different shamer necessarily. It's like, but just like at least uh, you know give us a a thorough intriguing exploration <laughs> yeah like if you're gonna like if you're gonna wring your hands about it then you know let that bear fruit like let it go somewhere so yeah and i think that's where i struggle the most is i just i, I love king for his characters and this is a book where i really don't give a shit about the characters um except for max devore because he's a great <laughs> fucking evil nasty monster villain who knows exactly what he is and he's not waffling around like fucking mike noonan over here um so yeah uh i'm gonna give it Three bright red Pennywise clown noses uh, for the spooks and scares alone because I think they're pretty effective and there's some good writing. But and Max is great. He added a half nose in his own. And so um, is uh, he your MVP? He's my MVP. I love him. I love this guy. Uh, bring him back. <laughs> I want like a prequel. <laughs> bring him back. Um, it's great. There is sort of a Max. I would say there's actually some funny echoes of Billy Summers in this book. Uh, his latest. I, I don't think any of you guys have read it yet. Have you? Um, it's pretty good. But I actually think that he's there's another like 40, 40 some year old man, uh, 21 year old girl relationship in this that almost feels like a direct comment on the way he handled things in Bag mm. of Bones in ways that I think are are good. We talk about it a lot in our episode. And um, also, uh uh, there's also, you know, a, a very Devore-like figure, Max Devore-like figure that surfaces in that book um, that is not as fun and satisfying as Max, but still a pretty fun king villain. So, yeah, that does it for our episode on Bag of Bones. That was a marathon app. Uh, we'll see how long this one shakes out when we edit it down, but it's 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 a it's a bear. But I feel like uh, we did a great job breaking that one down. And uh, stay tuned because we're going to be back with uh, an episode on the miniseries starring Pierce Brosnan. I think he was at a low point in his career. He's doing great now. He's in Marvel <laughs> movies and shit. So uh, Pierce is doing just fine. Um, but I'm very excited to to uh to dig into that but yeah um in terms of book episodes we've got hearts in atlantis coming up and we've also got the girl who loved tom gordon coming up so uh those are uh the next and ones. something wicked this way oh comes. something wicked this way comes yes we are going to be discussing that in our dance macabre series where we talk about the books that influence king um if you want to check out our Patreon, you can find it at patreon.com slash the Barons. We've got insane amounts of of, of content. Uh, many, many episodes, <laughs> many, many. What uh, is it called? Content. <laughs> well, it's hard to describe it, man. We got so much. Uh, that's the catch-all word. But we got some series going on. Like I said, we have our archival series. Dan's going to be kicking off a Dark Tower uh, series that we're going to be hopping into soon, uh, talking about some of the uh, lore surrounding that world. And uh, we've also got our film review series, The Crate and um, um, lobstrosities and all that fun stuff. So uh, all of you guys, uh, Anna, where can we find you uh, if people want to hear more of your beautiful voice? Oh, thank you. Uh, I have several podcasts. Well, actually, just two others. I have an interview podcast called With Friends Like These, where we talk about, sometimes we talk about hard stuff. Uh, John Hodgman is coming up soon, nice. though. And uh, nice. that's not particularly hard. Although he's, he's a very interesting guy, in addition to being hilarious. Uh, and I also have a genre podcast uh, called Space the Nation, in which uh, my co-host and I, uh, a international relations professor at Tufts, examine science fiction through the lens of politics and also um i've been joking critical race theory uh, 
my, my parents' nemesis for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is there is some um, basically like I you know I went to grad school for history, so there is a little bit of like high pollutant talk, but also we do fun things like talk about Suicide Squad. So cool. You awesome. sh- people who like this show will like that show. Although Dan and I usually bring our episodes in under an hour. <laughs> well, so incredible, good balance. Just understand. saying. <laughs> yeah, we don't understand that. Uh, Mel, uh, where can people find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Mel Castle. I mostly retweet these days, but I'm happy to connect on there. I have a website, melcastle.com. You can read some of my stories there. I can finally announce that I have a story that will be included in the upcoming anthology, The Best American Sci-Fi and Fantasy, coming out in October. Hell yeah. Um, so you should pick nice. that up and read my story about a giant crawfish. Um, and yeah, With a heart that's of gold. it. Um, it's just a dumb crawfish. <laughs> <laughs> it's just really big. <laughs> Dan, where can we find you? Uh, Dan Flieger on most socials. And as Randall mentioned, we're going to start doing a Dark Tower-centric series. Not quite conspiracy radio but it's going to be a few <laughs> shades away so have some fun stuff coming up there at the end of the month yeah stay tuned for that and uh you can find me at randall colburn on all socials and here on the losers club lots going on and um thank you for listening let's sign off with a long days and pleasant and pleasant, pleasant This is the end of our show, for now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs>